The Lord be with you. This is a, uh, a bit of an unusual week, because apparently I'm getting taller. I'm going to keep using that joke until you all laugh at it. Uh, this is a bit of an unusual week, because Pastor Mark was scheduled to be gone, and he is gone. He has left us, uh, has gone back to Salem, back to Beacon, New York. Um, but he, this has been on the calendar for a while. Uh, so he's uh, gone. He's preaching there this morning. Keep him in your thoughts and your prayers. Uh, Pastor Brent and Janice were supposed to be standing on this stage today. And many of you know that uh, Janice's sister has been battling cancer for a few years now. And uh, they got the call this week that they feel as though she's in her last moments. And so uh, pretty last minute, they asked if I would step in so that they could go and spend these last few days with her sister, which I think is totally appropriate. Um, so can we just take a moment right now and pray uh, for Janice, for her sister, for her family? God, we, we know that death is the last great enemy. God, but you have put it under your feet. And in this moment of transition for Janice's sister, God, we know that you are standing at the threshold. God, that you are there prepared to receive her with open arms. But God, you receiving her means a loss for us. So God, we pray for Brent and for Janice and their families. God, that you would give them peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. One thing that uh, they did want to do this weekend and felt a little odd not being here to do uh, is giving you all an update on the building. We mentioned a couple months ago that we might be moving, and then you've just not heard from us again. So... Um, <laughs> They felt that it would be good to let you know what's happening to that end, um, so they wrote you a letter. Dear Sanctuary family, we wish we could be there in person to share this update with you, but life and ministry have called us away from Tulsa this morning. However, since so many of you have approached us, asking us for an update on our possible move to Midtown, we thought it would be helpful to write down our thoughts and have Brother Paul share them with you. Our proposed move to Midtown is still on the table, in the works, and well underway. The plain fact is this is a highly unusual scenario involving three parties rather than the two parties in most real estate deals, and that complexity has slowed down the process a bit. We've been going through the offer-counter-offer process, and while it looks like a final agreement is right around the corner, we don't want to be presumptuous in our communication to you. Are you familiar with the old bird in the hand idiom? Well, this is exactly that. We can see the bird. We've been talking about the bird. The bird seems to really like us, but that bird is not in our hand yet. For those unfamiliar with the bird in the hand versus the bird in the bush, this might be a great time to use Google or make a new friend at Sanctuary who can walk you through this process. The proverbial bottom line is this. Our vestry board is still working through this project for us, and in an effort to avoid overreaching and then having to backtrack, 
we've intentionally tried to err on the side of saying too little. Thank you for your understanding and for your patience, and thank you for your prayers. We still need them. As, as has been our plan from the beginning, we will be very clear and timely in our communication with you as soon as we have something firm to say. We love you and look forward to the new season of life and ministry that the Spirit is leading us into as a church family, Pastors Mark and Brent. So there you have it. We may be moving. We might not be moving. (laughs) Oh, Father. So the title for today's sermon, in case you haven't read the screen yet, is Let Bad Religion Die. So we've just heard the gospel text for the week uh, from Matthew chapter 23, which is this rather scathing statement from Jesus that is pointed at the teachers of the law, at the Pharisees, and he says things like they don't practice what they preach. They place heavy burdens on other people's shoulders that they themselves are not willing to carry. Their religion is built on putting on some kind of show. They love the place of honor at banquets. And Jesus ends this sort of rebuke by stating, the greatest among you will be your servant. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in some ways, I feel like I need to be careful today. Uh, Who's familiar with the Enneagram? Enneagram people out there, a couple of you. So I'm a nine on the Enneagram. Some of you are going to go, oh, yeah, okay. And others of you, that means absolutely nothing. But I'm going to fill you in a little bit. Uh, nines on the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a sort of like personality type system. Helps you understand yourself, understand the world, other people. But I'm a nine, and nines are peacemakers. And nines hate conflict. Um, It actually is a source of anxiety. And I don't mean just like kind of casually dislike conflict. I mean like the blood pressure starts to raise. Like I get a little weak in the knees. My palms are already sweaty, by the way. Um, And so in some ways, I feel like in moving into this sermon, I need to be careful because it would be easy for me to become the one who is putting a heavy burden on your shoulders that I'm not willing to carry for myself. It would be easy for me in this moment to not practice what I preach. But I want us to look just a couple verses further to verse 15 of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus leaves us with this really sweet, little nugget. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Amen? It seems what Jesus is getting at is a way of practicing religion that actually leaves people worse off than if they hadn't heard it in the first place. Can I be a little, give a little testimony? Um, you all don't know a whole lot about me, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> I love it. Um, but I am a deep product of the church. I'm a third-generation pastor's kid. Where are my PKs? I know you're out there. Most of them are on the front row. (laughs) Um, I preached my first sermon when I was 15 years old. And as if it's not crazy enough that someone listened to a 15-year-old, they listened to me as a 15-year-old. My great-grandparents were church planters for the Assemblies of God. So if you go to the Assemblies of God Museum in Springfield, Missouri, which I'm sure you all have frequented, 
Um, the first thing you see when you step in the front door is, is a life-size statue of my great-grandparents. Uh, she is sitting down playing a banjo, because that's what she did for their services, and he is standing there holding a Bible uh, with his hand on her shoulder. And the irony in all of that is that she was the better preacher. Yeah, absolutely. That was like usually the case in these sorts of situations. Uh, my dad pastored in Fort Wayne, Indiana for 37 years. I can remember the first time that I prayed with someone to receive Christ. Uh, I was 13 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And I, t I was talking to this kid. And I was telling him, your life, when you make this decision, is going to be so much different you're going to think about everything differently. You're going to be a new creation. You know, I'm talking him through, like, he's going to have this serious ontological experience in just a minute. Like, get ready for it. And so I lead him through the sinner's prayer, and I'm looking at him like, huh? Huh? And nothing. Like, he is a blank slate. And in that moment, I have to think that Jesus was standing there like, you have made this guy twice as much a child of hell and so I stopped sharing my faith with people like that. And so instead, I started saying things to my friends whenever they would do something stupid. I'd start saying things to them like, oh, you need Jesus, man. And they'd go, ah, yeah, that's funny. Like, yeah. And then I'd be like, no, you really need Jesus. Um, but they never really received that message. Can you see where that's headed? That there's a way of doing religion poorly. We need to let bad religion die. So for any of us who have these kinds of deep roots in the church, at one point or another, you become aware of this sort of built-in system of anxiety. This system that focuses on certainty, on knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? This sort of religion, it's a system that emphasizes doing enough or giving enough. And this system that is constantly concerned about sinning in such a way that causes you to lose your salvation. This will be fun. Quick show of hands. Who here at some point in your life was ever afraid that you missed the rapture? Yeah. Like, how many among us as kids came home from a friend's house late one night and you walk in your front door, your parents are nowhere to be found, lights are off, your siblings aren't there, and you're going, has the Lord forsaken me? Is this it? Am I doomed to just wander the earth alone? And so for those of you who had your hands raised, what was always the safety net? Who did you call? Grandma. Grandma. Because if grandma is still here, everything's okay. That was not scripted. I wrote down grandma. So as grateful as I am to have been raised in the church, I also grew up with this sense that God has this tendency to be this judgmental, destructive deity. So in light of that, let me read to you another one of our lectionary texts for today. This one comes to us from the book of Micah, chapter 3. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, 
They proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with the power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Aren't these just such uplifting verses that the lectionary offers us this week? So Micah is fed up. And he's critiquing those who claim to be prophets when all they're doing is leading people further from the reality of who God is. These are the people who proclaim peace when they're being fed, but wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. And to be sure, this is not the gospel. The gospel is much less convenient. So listen, we need to let bad religion die. But oftentimes, we can only tell bad religion from good religion by seeing what it does and how it responds to the weakest and least useful people among us. In that way, those of us who practice bad religion rarely recognize it. For most of us, it's hard to even imagine that bad religion is possible at all. So instead, we ask ourselves questions like, isn't all desire for God good? Isn't it always right to love Scripture? Isn't it always right to give money to missions, etc.? But it's only when we see that religion has the capacity to go bad that we can even begin to consider the possibility our religion has gone bad. And this isn't just about letting bad religion die. This isn't something we can do passively. We need to put bad religion to death. We need to crucify it because it will not go quietly. All that will come of it is alienation from our neighbor, and cause us to miss the voice of God in our community. See, we need to let go of any type of religion that is grounded and rooted in fear, like missing the rapture and having to call grandma. We need to let go and put to death any type of religion that is self-serving and take up a gospel-rooted religion that is grounded in service to God and to one another. In this way, James tells us, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. To visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think these texts, I think they tell us something about the ways in which God works. We see in Micah that because of the bad religion, these false prophets, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. So it seems that some work that God does in our lives is actually destructive. 
In the book of Jeremiah, we read, In the past, I deliberately uprooted and tore down this nation. I overthrew it, destroyed it, and brought disaster upon it. But in the future, I will just as deliberately plant it and build it up. I, the Lord, have spoken. So here we see that God's work involves uprooting, tearing down, overthrowing, destroying, and bringing disaster, and then building and planting. This means that most of the time when God is doing something, he's not building and planting. Most of the time, God is uprooting and tearing down and overthrowing and destroying. When we want God to build and plant our relationship with God, God responds by uprooting, tearing down, overthrowing, and destroying what we think about our relationship with God. When we want to grow our churches, God responds by uprooting, tearing down, overthrowing, and destroying what we think we know church is. It seems that we have to let go of what we think we know about God so that God can reveal God's self to us. We have to find ways of trusting God without being certain of who God is. I'm going to say that again. We have to find ways of trusting God without being certain of who God is. So when we read in Micah that Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, we have to remember that in 2 Chronicles, God says that I have written my name on Jerusalem. So what exactly is God tearing down? God is tearing down every system And every way of living that is built on his name that does not reflect God's character. God is in the business of tearing down every system, every ideology that is established and built on God's name or on God's people that does not rightly reflect the character of God. When the prophets begin to prophesy for money, when the priests begin to teach for a price, when the leaders judge for bribes, you can be sure God is going to tear that system down. And isn't it ironic then that the prophets and the priests who believed that they were in the business of building Zion actually end up being the ones to bring about its destruction? That's another sermon for another day. So let's think about this for a minute. We have God, and God has reluctantly given his people a king, a king that they so desperately desired. And now God has to find a way in which he can reconcile being the king of kings and the Lord of lords with a people who constantly seem to reject that authority. If we remember this story correctly, for generations, the Israelites were trying to take Israel, were trying to take Jerusalem. And for hundreds of years, they were unsuccessful And when they finally do, what do they call it? They call it the city of David. When they finally encounter the promise that God had given them, they they misname it. This isn't the city of God. It's not the holy city. It becomes the city of David. And so at its worst, does Israel signify a sort of spiritual pride? 
a pride that creeps into our churches and into our communities, that creeps into all the ways that God calls us to live and belong to one another. And instead, we mar the image of God in our churches and in our communities. We mar God's image by establishing the kingdom of what we think about church. We mar God's image by establishing the kingdom of what we think about community. And here's the thing. Sometimes what we think turns out to be successful. Sometimes it works. For Israel, this meant that Jerusalem, this holy city, became a sort of notch on the bedpost. And much of today's gospel text deals with how we handle a sense of spiritual success. The priests and the prophets, they were respected in their culture. They were successful. They were the people who had done all the studying, who had in the past received a word from the Lord, and they distorted that success. So what if, when we cease to be a marker of God's glory and become people that are self-serving, God steps in and starts to do the destructive work of reducing the holy cities of our hearts to rubble? To be sure, whatever we try to build here at Sanctuary that is built on our ambition or our ideas of success will not last, even if it's successful for a season. And this is why. The future of the world is Jesus Christ. And any ambition, any project, any movement that fails to square with the life and teaching and death and resurrection of this Christ, of this King, will not last. Another thing we have to consider is that God's perspective of the world is always seeing it for what it could be. As Christians, we are not called to call it like it is. As Christians, we are not called to call it like it is. We are called to proclaim the hope of who and what we can become as the people of God. Who and what Christ is calling us to be. But this is not easy work. As Eugene Peterson once said, the kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. So how do we move forward? What do we do with this? I want to suggest to you that the path forward is paved by service. There's something about being a holy nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that is fundamentally rooted in our service to God and to one another, especially one another. There's... We've said it before that taking the Lord's name in vain has very little to do about swearing. And it has everything to do with calling ourselves Christian and living in a way that is contrary to the gospel. This is taking the Lord's name in vain. If the word of the Lord that we proclaim to our neighbor is not reinforced by our service to our neighbor, we become the prophets that prophesy peace when they're fed and war when we have nothing to eat. If we are going to succeed as a community, it means that we will succeed as a community that is deeply rooted in service to one another. This is bad religion. This is the religion that we must crucify and put to death. So here are a few notes on service and on serving one another. Our service to one another should never be motivated by how it benefits me. Our service to one another should always 
be in response to the God who gave himself for us in Christ and a response to that love. Any participation or any service that is conditional or based on how it improves my life must be uprooted, torn down, overthrown, and destroyed. It must be put to death. Here's why this is dangerous. If we don't put to death this kind of religion, a religion that is useful or beneficial in this way, then our perception of God's work in our community is tainted by whether or not we are being served and whether or not we are having our needs met. What we ought to be concerned with is how we can serve and how we can meet the needs of others. So hear me, this is not about earning some right to speak. This is not about becoming a greeter at the door so that you can tell people that you believe God is telling them God does not appreciate their political Facebook posts. We don't get to manipulate the spirit like that. That cannot be the purpose of our service. Abraham Heschel, he's been coming up a lot in this community. If you've not read Heschel, go out and just grab a couple of his books because apparently the spirit's leading us toward Heschel. But Abraham Heschel once said, the prophet's duty is to speak to the people whether they hear or refuse to hear. We speak prophetically by our service to one another. Service that can either be heard or refuse to be heard. This is how our service cannot be self-serving. Service that is either acknowledged or done in secret. It's noticed or unnoticed. This is the kind of service that God calls us to. Heschel continues, The prophet is a lonely man. He alienates the wicked as well as the pious, the cynics as well as the believers, the priests and the princes, the judges and the false prophets. But to be a prophet means to challenge and to defy and to cast out fear. I love those three things going together. It challenges, it defies, and it casts out fear. When we serve one another, it is indeed challenging. But it is challenging to our own sense of importance. When we serve one another, it is a defiant act. But it's defying our own pride and our own ambitions. Listen, the crucifixion of Jesus was not some sort of unfortunate misunderstanding. They didn't accidentally put to death an innocent man. The crucifixion of Jesus is what happens when the powers that be are confronted by its rightful king. So in the midst of challenging and in the midst of defying, we can rest in this, that when we serve one another, it always, always, always casts out fear. We're talking about moving to Midtown. We're looking at the balance of our two services. And I'll tell you this, if there is any sense of fear in our community, it's because we've not learned what it means to serve one another. When we concern ourselves with meeting the needs of others, with preferring our brothers and our sisters and outdoing one another in showing honor, fear has no place at this table. In this way, service is simply about living in community rightly and faithfully. 
I think this is a good time to put this sermon in the context of sanctuary and this community. So for those of us who call sanctuary our people, our home, I want to ask us, I need to ask myself this difficult question. How are we serving each other? How am I serving my brother and my sister sitting to my left and to my right? How am I serving the single mother who walks in through the sanctuary doors with her arms full, her hair barely done, she's out of breath, but she is here? Do I run to her? Do I open up my arms to take up her children, to carry them to the nursery, to show her where the nursing mother's room is, to let her come into this space to catch her breath and to worship for just a moment? And we need to ask these kinds of questions about every single person who walks into these doors because we're constantly being confronted by people who are of a different age, who are of a different gender, who are of a different race. And we have to ask ourselves the question, how do I find myself in service to these people? Am I treating them with hospitality? Am I stepping in to serve in areas where there is a need? Hear this, am I at all scandalized? when I hear parents have to be turned away from the nursery because we don't have enough volunteers to hold their children? Does that scandalize me at all? Or do I just say, well, they can come back next week? When we hear these kinds of needs exist in our community, we can't be the ones that are placing a heavy burden on someone that we are not willing to carry. This is the gospel. There seems to be some connection with our ability to be hospitable and our ability to lead holy lives. If holiness is indeed otherness and hospitality has everything to do with how I treat the other, then we can't expect to be inhospitable and lead holy lives. Our capacity to live meaningfully together in community it hinges on our ability to serve one another. It's interesting in Micah chapter 2, we see Micah accusing the prophets of twisting all that is right, of everything that is straight and upright. They make crooked all that should be straight and upright. So how many of you are familiar with wicker baskets or wicker chairs? We live in Tulsa. There's Cracker Barrels. Come on. So wicker is this practice of bending and twisting and folding back on itself. This is actually where we get our word wicked. And I believe it's Augustine that says this is what's happened to the human heart. That it's become twisted and manipulated in such a way that any time we try to love, it, it falls back on itself. Anytime we try to love others, it actually ends up as a way of being loving of ourselves. Anytime that we try to serve one another, it actually becomes a way of self-serving. This posture, it actually prevents us from loving appropriately, from serving appropriately. And appropriate love, faithful love, is always done in the context of service. 
But if we are going to be healed, if we're going to be untwisted from our selfishness, if we're going to be untangled from our ambitions so that we can stand upright, so that we can love God and our neighbor appropriately, how does that healing take place? We talked about this last week, that sanctuary is not just supposed to be a safe place. We're supposed to be a healing place. That people not only feel welcome, but people are welcome and their wounds are bandaged. See, we will start to heal one another when we find we're able to tie the towel around our waist and wash each other's feet. Do you remember the story in the Gospel of Luke of the lame man who was carried to Jesus? It was only when Jesus saw the faith of those carrying the lame man that his sins are forgiven. This is what our community ought to be doing all the time. Carrying and being carried by those we rightly see as our brothers and sisters. Because it's by the faith of others that we can be healed. We've said it before that sanctuary is a place for people who feel like they have no faith. Because there are people who will come and have faith for them. I believe that the voice of God is pregnant with anticipation in this house. I believe that when we find ourselves in service to one another, we will start to discern the word of the Lord for this community. Let me leave you with these final thoughts, and I'll read to you the Apostle Paul's response from 1 Thessalonians. And understand that I have to throw myself in with this lot too. We're all in this together. How many of my brothers and sisters have gone without healing because I've not been willing to serve them? How many of my brothers and sisters have left without a sense of hope or direction? Their fear has not been cast out because I've not been willing to serve them. Hear these words from Paul. You remember our labor and toil our service, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, as to how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let me pray for us. God, we need new eyes and new ears to hear the word that you might have for us. But God, as your word explains... Your word only comes to us when we're able to, like Christ, wrap the towel around our waist, to get on our knees, and to wash the feet of those at the table. God, help us to be a community that casts out fear by a reckless pursuit of one another, by a reckless 
service, and hospitality to everyone who would call sanctuary home. Help me discern the ways in which I can better serve these people, your people. If they don't belong to any of us, God, we all belong to you. Through Christ our Lord, everyone said.